another presidential election cycle and yet another lame attempt by the left to scare voters into voting for them and their party, the Democratic Party, because that's the only party that can save the world's inhabitants from climate change. Forgive my language here, friends, but really, what a load of crap. I'm Brian Sussman. I was an award-winning television meteorologist and science reporter who was even selected to be on a prestigious AMS, American Meteorological Society, Board of Education. And then I went rogue. I left television to become a conservative radio talk show host in San Francisco. The talk show host job in San Francisco lasted for nearly 20 years. Along the way, in 2010, I further astonished my former television colleagues by writing a book, Climate Gate, A Veteran Meteorologist Exposes the Global Warming Scam. It became a national bestseller. The second of my one-two punch combination was to release another book in 2012 entitled Eco-Tyranny, How the Left's Green Agenda Will Dismantle America. It, too, became extremely well-read. I'll summarize much of what I wrote in those two books in this podcast. You'll learn that, for example, the current fires in the Western United States are not to be blamed on climate change. I'll also summarize the fact that the Earth does not have a fever and that all of this climate nonsense you're hearing is part of a long-standing environmental plot that goes all the way back to, are you ready for this? Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Yes, I will prove all of this in this edition of Hidden Headlines, Faith, Family, Freedom. Thanks for joining me, friends. More on me at briansussman.com. So let's go back to the beginning of the environmental scaremongering. I recall that when I discovered what you're about to hear, even I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, to connect these dots blew everyone away. Me first and foremost. So this is the sentence, first of all, from my book, Climategate. First sentence. It immediately set my book apart from all the others written to debunk human-caused global warming. I wrote, global warming story begins with a diabolical bastard named Karl Marx. Okay, that tells you where I'm going with this one. Karl Marx and his writing partner, partner, who was named uh, Frederick Engels, concocted something that they referred to as the three laws of matter. I best summarize these so-called laws in the first chapter of Eco-Tyranny. So that was my second book. And on page five, I write this. Committed Marxists are convinced that phenomena such as love, passion, value, and feelings aren't real because they're not composed of matter. Even consciousness, and especially faith in God, are simply the result, they say, of material interactions within the human mind. In addition, Marxists contend that some people, some people are randomly spit out of their mother's womb with a better brain than most. Those with the best brains 
have a Darwinian authority to rule over those with the lesser brains, lest those with the deficient brains destroy the planet and kill one another. Thus, the need for a heavy-handed form of government loaded with burdensome regulations and the perfect excuse for socialism, communism, and fascism are found in Marx's Laws of Matter. Does that make sense to you? In other words, Marx was, well, Marx and Engels were avowed atheists, and they held a very antagonist view towards especially Christianity. In fact, when Marx began his rebellion against God, he was a student at the University of Berlin, and he was highly influenced by a professor there named George Hegel. This was around 1840. In fact, besides being influenced by Hegel, he joined a group at the university called the Young Hegelians. These Young Hegelians, they weren't there just to have some campus activism. They were there to change the world. They had high and lofty goals, change the world. And their number one goal, liquidate Christianity. Liquidate Christianity. And what was the global epicenter of Christianity at that time? The United States, the place that had been founded on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. By the way, Marx knew this. The original phrase for pursuit of happiness was the pursuit of property. That's the way it was penned by philosopher John Locke. It was Thomas Jefferson that changed that in our Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness. But think about it. Think about it for just a moment. What brings one happiness? It's, it's property. Property provides happiness. And the ownership of property, be it real estate, a car, or whatever brings you happiness, even this, the clothes on your back, comes to most of us via hard work and the school of hard knocks. So let me continue from the book Climategate. This is from the foreword of the book. Karl Marx and his band of rebels began their rebellion against God as students at the University of Berlin, as I mentioned, where he strongly was influenced by philosopher George Hegel and a group of his followers known as the Young Hegelians. Their goal was straightforward, liquidate Christianity. In Marx, uh, Marx in 1841, excuse me, Marx received a doctorate in philosophy. Karl Marx and his band of rebels were all aware, well aware, of the Republican form of government being experimented with in America, and they loathed it. Marx perceived America's founders as reckless, Christian simpletons who were peddling dangerous propaganda, especially when they placed the phrase life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness into their Declaration of Independence. To the collectivist, such freedoms were and are preposterous. The life of an individual is not unique just a fragment of the ever-multiplying collective mass, the result of a random cosmic Darwinian accident. Likewise, liberty is an unattainable notion. The human masses are wholly incapable of coexistence without formidable government control and regulation. Furthermore, the pursuit of happiness is the most egregious maxim of all, and Marx was aware of the origins of this phrase. It was penned in direct reference to English philosopher John Locke, who in 1690 wrote, 
The necessity of pursuing happiness is the foundation of liberty. I continue, America's founders understood that property was synonymous with liberty and security. They comprehended that in a capitalistic free market economy system void of overreaching government regulation, new workers or immigrants could progress up the class ladder in conjunction with their effort. Owning their business, farm, home, and estate. Such beliefs were offensive to Marx. The concept of a God that would command humans to take ownership of land and improve it and even defend that property of their, as their very own was a hopelessly flawed theory. It flew in the face of the laws of matter. As an antidote to the presumptuous experiment being conducted in the United States, in 1849, Marx and Engels presented the world their final formula for revolution. They called it the Manifesto to the World. The infernal document would eventually be known as the Communist Manifesto. And in chapter 2 of his Manifesto, I write, Marx boldly states that the goal of his envisioned new order is that the theory of the communists could be summed up in one single sentence, the abolition of private property. The abolition of private property. The perverted musings of these original community organizers, Marx and Engel, opened both the bloody floodgates of tyranny and the green gates of of environmentalism, the green gates of environmentalism. Of course, the bloody tyranny was, in the last century, at least 110 million people died because that's what communists do. If you get in their way, they will kill you. And regarding their green agenda, oh my goodness, it's taking place right here in the United States of America big time. So the first political leader, or shall I say dictator, to practice the ruminations of Marx and his disciples was Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, who took over Russia in 1917. And in 1918, get ready for this, he issued a mandate entitled The Decree on Land. The Decree on Land. Let me take you to page 14 of my book, Eco-Tyranny. Within a few years as party chairman in 1918, I'm reading here from Eco-Tyranny, he issued a mandate, Vladimir Lenin did, a mandate titled Decree on Land. It declared all forests, waters, and minerals to be property of the state. Later that same year, as locals began to clear portions of the forest for firewood, and construction material, Leonard issued a stern dictate entitled Decree on Forests. And from that moment on, the forests were protected, and only certain small, insignificant sectors were established for harvest. Lenin's decree declared that protected areas served as a, as a preservation of monuments of nature. This is very similar to how the hardcore leftists, as I'll explain, see the forests of America. These are monuments of nature that should not be touched. They don't want them logged. They don't want them cleared. And most important of all, they do not want you to live in those regions. 
Now, let me take you back to the book ClimateGate. This is from the first chapter entitled Foundations of Fraud. I sniffed this one out when I was in high school way, way back. Okay, don't hold it against me, but I'm an old guy and I read from, uh, from ClimateGate. I sniffed this one out in 1970. My high school earth science teacher had mandated our class celebrate the newly created Earth Day. It was the first Earth Day, 1970. I had always suspected this guy was a weirdo, and now those suspicions were confirmed. Just a few years out of teacher college, his hair was parted down the middle and longer than the older male instructors. He sported the round, wire-rimmed glasses that had recently come into style with all the hippies, and of course, he wore a beard. To me, a jock, I was into sports, he was basically a flower child with a teaching job, but a nice enough guy nonetheless, and he really was. He was he was a nice guy. But there he was, smiling like it was Christmas. He walked about the room distributing green Earth Day buttons, mentioning something about this being a teach-in, and he urged us to pin the buttons on to save the Earth. And of course, we all did, with hopes of the pin translating to a good grade in his class. But heck, with all the environmental disasters we were seeing in the nightly news recently, who could be against the idea of clean water and clean air? But for me, there was a problem. Deep down, for some reason, I couldn't exactly put my finger on it, but the whole thing smelled like a gimmick. And I remember thinking, how can wearing a stupid button save the earth? My dad, on the other hand, knew exactly how to put his finger on it. Bullshit! He proclaimed when I came home wearing the button. <laughs> I remember that like it was yesterday. Bullshit! Well, his generation possessed quite a nose for a scam, and when they smelled it, they had no reservation warning folks not to step in it. So we're celebrating the earth now. It's kind of like a birthday, he said. He was looking at the button, words dripping with sarcasm. I just shrugged embarrassed. You're wearing that button and you don't even know what you're celebrating? Well, my science teacher gave them out. And you just pinned it on? Now I really felt like a goof. I didn't respond. Without breaking a smile, my dad cracked, you know, I'd love to purchase a gift from Mother Earth, but what do you buy for someone who has everything? <laughs> It took a second, but when I saw that gleam in his eye, I cracked up and he joined in and he slapped me on the shoulder with great manly pride and I removed the moronic button. What do you give to someone who has everything? Looking back, I wish I would have had the insight to use my old man's line on the science teacher. However, for the many years I presented the weather on television in the otherwise ultra-liberal San Francisco Bay Area, I did use that line every April 22nd. Anchorman friend Dave McElhatton would, all, would always set me up by saying, time right now for weather on this Earth Day with Brian Sussman. Brian, happy Earth Day. And then I would say, well, Dave, I would have gotten a present from Mother Earth on this Earth Day, but what do you get for someone who has everything? And of course, my anchorman, Dave McAlatton, would always have a nice canned laugh as if he never heard the joke before. And I used that joke for many, many, many years. Every April 22nd, 
Now, what's what's interesting about that date, April 22nd? My goodness, that just happens to be the date of Vladimir Lenin's birth. And in 1970, the first Earth Day, that would have been his 100th year had he lived that long. Folks, this is no coincidence. In fact, the left does nothing by coincidence. Al Gore, the former vice president and for a couple decades, the global leader of the global warming crowd, used to declare the earth has a fever. So just how much has the earth's atmosphere actually warmed since the Industrial Revolution? Actually, I'm going to do better than that. I'm going to take you way, way back in history. But as we do that, I'm going to read from ClimateGate. This is chapter two of ClimateGate. When citizens lack a frame of reference, they are primed to succumb to the transformational vortex of historical relativism. Karl Marx understood this well and wrote, History does nothing. It possesses no immense wealth. It wages no battle. So, for those waving the green flag of global warming, they have no respect of history, just as Karl Marx did. Now, knowing li- no one living today was present to witness the first time the media and a host of melodramatic scientists went gaga over global, are you ready for this? Cooling. Global cooling. It's lost in the dusty annals of history. The Great Ice Age Panic that spanned the 19th and early 20th centuries. Have you even heard about this? Well, let me continue. On February 24th, 1895, the New York Times started the ball rolling with the proclamation, geologists think the world may be frozen up again. Due to concerns of rapidly advancing glaciers and reports of extremely cold weather around the world, the story wondered whether, quote, Recent and long-continued observations do not point to the advent of a second glacial period. Again, this is the late 1890s. The fear was global cooling. Global cooling. Predictions of a coming global freeze escalated when the much-publicized unsinkable Titanic met its fate with an uncharted iceberg in the North Atlantic on April 14th, 1912, killing some 1,500 people, including many of the world's rich and famous. Three months later, after the tragedy, page one of the Times heralded, Professor Schmidt warns us of an encroaching ice age. In that October 7th, 1912 article, the Times quoted Professor Nathaniel Schmidt of Cornell University as saying the, wor- the world will need scientific knowledge to, quote, combat the perils of the next ice age. Unbeknownst to Dr. Schmidt, during his day, modern-day global warming hucksters would use the exact same lingo to panic their audiences 90 years later. Exact same language. We need to combat the perils of global warming. Well, back then it was global cooling. By 1930... The global cooling hysteria had done nothing more to sell a lot of ad space in the newspapers because temperatures began climbing 
climbing during the hot and dusty 1930s, setting records, in fact, that in many cases have yet to be broken. I'll talk about that a little later. The problem with any generation, I write, is that a long-term memory of the past requires a determined and studied effort, a fact upon which modern eco-Marxists depend for success. They don't want you to look back at history. They don't want you to know about the Little Ice Age or the Ice Age scare of the late 1890s. We'll talk about the Little Ice Age in just a moment. In this age of information or false information, even the recent past quickly becomes fuzzy, almost guaranteeing a headache to anyone who racks his or her brain digging deeply to mine true facts and details. And that's precisely what the current climate scare tacticians are banking on, especially the elitist politicians and policymakers who continually capitalize on a society's lack of cognizance. The bigger the public's memory hole, the better. They see it as an effective means to grow government and thus better control the way in which the underclass lives. In addition to the deceivers in government, unscrupulous scientific researchers are dependent on perpetuating the global warming and climate change myth for continued flows of grant money. So you have, now listen, it's a different game in Washington, D.C. because Trump's there. But prior to Trump, during the Obama years, they used climate change, they used the environment to grow government immensely. And again, colleges and universities established curricula and majors to indoctrinate an entire generation to enlist in the so-called green workforce. And by the way, there were all sorts of researchers and think tanks that made loads of money during this period. You need to donate to us to stop climate change. Without a crisis, many politicians, researchers, educators, and graduates are without a cause, I write. However, contrary to Marx, history does produce great wealth and can win battles, especially in the climate debate, because climate happens, I write, without the influence of man. Climate happens without the influence of man. I'm going to break this down for you. I'm going to make it really, really simple in case you're taking notes. And I know some of you are. Here you go. From 1100 to 1800, the Earth's atmosphere was significantly colder than today. No one can dispute this. 1100 to 1800. Now, this multi-century period is known as the Little Ice Age. We know this from studying tree rings, studying the growth bands of coral. We have studies illustrating the physical isotopes of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen in decaying plants. And of course, we have lots of anecdotal data, which include the Thames River in London freezing solidly each winter for many, many years. And of course, there was a famine that killed millions of people in the late 1600s because of failed harvests. I should also mention that water-based thermometers were in use. They started in 19, uh, excuse me, 1593. So in the 1600s, you had people taking the temperature. And the mercury thermometer was invented in 1714. So it's not as if the thermometer is new technology. 
This was a worldwide cooling event, and it was even documented by the Chinese, who contend the global atmosphere was two degrees colder then than today. By the way, this cooling, this cooling followed a rather notable warming trend, which stretched from 900 to 1300. So you had the Little Ice Age, the dramatic cooling, and then a warm period. A warm period, known as the medieval warm period. Let me go back to my book, Climate Gate. Again, this is page 27. The medieval warm period occurred from 900 to 1300. During this span, the overall mean global temperature was considerably warmer than present. And there were no SUVs or smokestacks or airplanes seeping out that vilified carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Again, the medieval warm period was dramatic. It just happened. Just like with the Little Ice Age, we can confidently make our case based on a, an abundance of physical and historical evidence, including, including world-famous wines once produced in, of all places, the British Isles. In recent centuries, Great Britain has been well-known for beer and, and robust whiskey, but not wine. But during the height of the medieval warm period, England was home to the world's finest commercial vineyards. The grapes cultivated and wines produced in, in England competed with those in France and Germany. The important item to note is that the former vineyards in England are located latitudinally several hundred miles north of those in France and Germany. Again, those regions are too far north. They're too cool. They're incapable of yielding wine grapes today. But again, back then, it was A-OK. Here's another little fact about that warm period. It was the same time that the Vikings of Scandinavia were able to break out of their cold climate and begin to take over broad swaths of Europe and the British Isles. It's estimated that temperatures during this period in Scandinavia were as much as seven degrees warmer than today, and the overall global temperature about two degrees warmer than today. So let's break this down for you. The medieval warm period, eh, 1100 to 1300, some might say 900 to 1300, two degrees warmer than today. The Little Ice Age from 1350 to 1800, two degrees cooler than today. Then the Industrial Revolution began. In 1800, there were roughly one billion people on the planet. Today, there are over 7 billion. So 6 billion people later, billions of cars, billions of trucks, tractors, planes, jets, boats, ships, power plants. The temperature has risen 1 degree Fahrenheit. Again, I'll repeat that. 1 degree Fahrenheit since the Little Ice Age when the New York Times was saying a new glacial period was about to hit us. One degree Fahrenheit. They can show you all the graphs they want. It's one degree Fahrenheit. Now, a few interesting tidbits. In the United States, the hottest decade on record remains the 1930s. In fact, I could show you the statistics from some of the oldest weather stations in the United States. 
And since the 1930s in the United States, you could actually make a very, very good claim for the fact that temperatures fallen. I will also inform you along with that, that from 1940 to 1970, no one's going to dispute this. No one will dispute this. The 1930s, hottest decade on record, from 1940 to 1970, the temperature on the planet mysteriously dropped 0.18 degrees. It's true. It did. It just dropped from 40 to 1970. No one knows why. I also think this is a very big deal. Most of the world's temperature recording stations have been installed since the 1980s. So when you hear on the news, hottest weather ever recorded at fill in the blank. Take it with a grain of salt because it's likely the hottest temperature since the 1980s or whenever the thermometer was installed. And I've seen where some of these thermometers are installed. I mean, literally, I've seen thermometers put next to a ventilation shaft on a roof. I've seen thermometers put next to a burn. This was one that I've, I found up at Lake Tahoe. The Lake South Lake Tahoe temperature was being recorded right next to a refuse can that was often used for burning trash. I found this for myself. Don't know if they removed it, but I found it for myself. So again, take those numbers with a grain of salt. Now, let's get to the forest fires, and then I'm going to make some very interesting connections for you that these are the connections that surprised even me when I was putting together my books. But first of all, the fires. The two dozen major fires burning across Northern California were sparked by 12,000 lightning strikes. I watched this storm. It was phenomenal. As a spectator, it was the most amazing lightning storm I've ever seen in this area, for sure. It was a rare dose of monsoonal moisture from an old tropical storm. It blew up over central California in the middle of the night. And again, the display was awesome, but then there were the fires. Now, what's happening throughout much of the rest of the West is not necessarily lightning sparked. We have arsonists, absolute crazy people, maniacs that should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Many of them associated with Antifa. This isn't climate change. This is millions of acres of fuel that have not been cleared for decades. You know, back in the day when we'd have a forest fire, you just let it burn. This is what happened in the 1800s. Forest fire, let it burn. Clear out all the old vegetation. Things will eventually grow back. The Native Americans would do this on a regular basis as well. Clear out the underbrush with fire so that the trees wouldn't burn. They did it for the sake of nature and, and uh, animals and the things they would hunt. But nowadays, nowadays, oh no, you can't take out that undergrowth. A tree falls, you can't clear that out. That's sacred. Well, why do the environmentalists say that? Why don't they want clearing? It's because they don't want you. They don't want you walking in their forests. And of course, they do not want you building in their forests or near their forests. They see these fires as, I can't say a godsend, but how about a Gaia send? Of course, Gaia being the mythical mother of nature. But what is it about the environmentalists and people? Well, they see you 
as an insurgent son or daughter of nature. And now we get to the last portion of this podcast. I am going to now take you to my book, Eco-Tyranny, page 12. There are three additional founders of the Green Agenda that need to be brought into our discussion, whose names you may be unfamiliar with, but who certainly need to be noted as they are revered by hardcore environmentalists, teachers, and leaders today. Sir Edwin Ray Lancaster, who was a zoologist at University College in London and noted as the greatest Darwinist of his generation. In fact, he, it was well established that, or it is well established, that Lancaster's family and friends were friends with Charles Darwin. And much has been written, written of Little Ray being carried on the shoulders of Charles Darwin as a child. Though Lancaster was some 30 years younger than Marx, those two, Lancaster and Marx, were also close friends. Stay with me on this. And colleagues and fellow materialists and socialists. Lancaster was a frequent guest at Marx's household the last few years of Marx's life and attended his funeral. So again, Ray Lancaster was a noted Darwinist. His family was well-known to Charles Darwin. Lancaster was a frequent guest at Marx's household, Ten attended his funeral. There were only eight or nine people that attended his funeral. Marx's funeral. That was a big deal. So, regarding Das Kapital, one of Marx's books, Lancaster once wrote Marx that he was absorbing this great work, Das Kapital, with the greatest of pleasure and profit. That's what he wrote to Karl Marx. Lancaster was the most eco-socialist thinker of his time, writing powerful papers on species extinction due to human causes with an urgency that would not be found again until the late 20th century. Lancaster's most popular screed was entitled Nature and Man. Are you ready for this? In which he described humans as the insurgent sons of nature. Lancaster's star pupil was Arthur Tainsley, the man noted for coining the term ecosystem. So you have Lancaster a friend and disciple of Karl Marx. Lancaster calls man the insurgent son of nature. Lancaster has a star pupil named Arthur Tainsley who coins the term ecosystem. Tainsley was deeply concerned with the destructive human activities of the modern world. He said, quote, ecology must be applied to conditions brought about by human activity. The word ecology was crafted by communists to subvert capitalism and to allow for government control. In the 1940s, Tainsley had a young protege named Charles Elton who worked with him to further develop the ecosystem concept. Elton's fiery writing style set the stage for a coming generation of eco-authors. In 1958, he had a condemnation of the use of pesticides where he declared that this astonishing rain of death upon much of the world's surface was unnecessary and threatened the very delicate, organized, interlocking system of populations and the entire ecosystem. So again, from Marx, Marx, Lancaster, Tainsley, Elton, all the way to today's radicals. Folks, that's where we are. That's what's happening right now. 
This has been well-planned and well-staged, and it is neatly tied into socialism. And of course, the goal of socialism, according to Marx and Lenin, is communism. Hidden headlines. Faith, family, freedom. Thanks for joining me in this special edition. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. If so, please, if so, please share it with a friend. More on me at briansussman.com, my Facebook page, Brian Sussman Show. God bless you, my friends. May the truth prevail, because eventually it always will.